Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hello there, welcome to the latest episode of the Andy J Podcast. I hope you're doing well. It's a funny time, isn't it? It's that kind of mid-festive, although it doesn't feel very festive, circumstance. If you're listening to this as it's going out, then it's 2020. We've just had Christmas. We've got New Year approaching. Christmas, well, I don't know what it was like for you, but um, certainly hasn't been a typical Christmas obviously with uh, tier four lockdowns and the new strain of the coronavirus and everything else that's going on, plus the backdrop of Brexit and not being allowed to see family and interact the way we want to be. It's a weird time, and for many, it's a tough time. It's, it's a time that's been sapped of the joy that we're used to and hopefully have experienced historically over Christmas. And so for that reason, we decided that for this episode, we were going to do what we're calling the wellness episode. We've... Um, We've been very fortunate over the last few months to talk to some incredible celebrities and lots of whom have been very open about their challenges with mental health. So we thought it would be useful and perhaps might be able to help if we brought out some of those conversations. Rather than the full feature length chats and kind of playing this as a highlights reel, we thought it would be useful to play you several celebrities, big, big stars, talking about their own battles, their own challenges, their own approaches, how they've turned a corner, what they've done, what they've been through. Because I want you to know that if you're challenged, if you're having a tough time, that's not unique. Of course, it's unique to you and you have my great sympathy. But it isn't unique to be experiencing mental health problems. Everyone has them. Just a lot of people don't have the wherewithal to discuss it or to get help. So we have turned to the celebrities because, of course, we all look up to celebrities for various different reasons. And we have a huge mix of celebrities in this episode, all of whom have their own journeys to share. So let me tell you who we've got. And I'm also going to just give you some helplines and some numbers just in case it's useful. You may not need anything. You may just be coming to this podcast for some entertainment, in which case I think you'll also enjoy today's show because there's some fascinating conversations. And if you haven't heard these guests before, then this is a nice chance to hear them. Similarly, if you've been enticed by what you hear today and think, oh, I'd like to hear more from that person, all of them, we have much longer conversations with all of our guests today in our back catalogue. Just literally search through many of our old episodes and you'll find these stars that have a lot more to say than just what they say in this episode today. Anyway, let me tell you who we've got coming up. Well, we've got the superstar comedian Catherine Ryan, utterly hilarious, and has also had her own challenges to step against. Well, that's unique to everyone here. So let's just go through that and assume that, you know, everybody is going to talk about battles they have fought and how it's affected them and what they've done. The wonderful Suzanne Shaw, the one that everybody loves from Hearsay. She has an incredible conversation with me. Made in Chelsea's Miles Nazir. This is a guy who I had the pleasure of meeting face to face via the Driven Chat truck. 
and we've stayed in touch a little bit on text message and whatnot. What a fantastic human being. I just want to say Miles is a really good guy and I was it was lovely to chat to him. I mean, I can say that about everybody. Everybody's been incredible and super generous and especially when they're opening up about something so personal. You have to have a real connection and I've felt a real bond with all of these guests. The lovely Katie Mellower, singing sensation. Goodness me, what a story she has to share. Then there's a conversation with a lady who I thought was just remarkable with her incredible honesty and her openness and and the the battles that she has faced. That's Janet Devlin, singing sensation, X Factor star and an all-round lovely lady. Wow, what a story and, and what honesty from her. And, well, we start this episode with Made in Chelsea's King. He's just done incredibly well in Strictly Come Dancing, uh, runner-up to, obviously, the... Uh, the wonderful Bill Bailey, that is Jamie Lang. What a guy. A great way to open the show. I told you I'd give you out some numbers. If you need help, or if somebody you know needs help, or you just think, you know what, it'd be useful to speak to someone that isn't a friend, someone that isn't going to judge me, you can always pick up the phone to the Samaritans. You can always pick up the phone to the Samaritans. Their number is 116123. Then there's the Campaign Against Living Miserably, CALM. Their number is 0800 58 58 58. That's 0800 58 58 58. And there's another great website for mental health support for younger people and indeed parents of younger people that are having challenges. And that is youngminds.org.uk. Youngminds.org.uk. There is help out there. Whatever time of year it is, whatever time of day it is, middle of the night, first thing in the morning, lunchtime, whatever, there's always someone who can pick up the phone. Do call them. Hey, listen, we'll be back uh, at the end of the show. And of course, next week, we've got plenty more entertaining celebrities for you. But for now, enjoy what we're calling the wellness episode. I hope you enjoy it. And if you need the help, if you need to know you're not alone, I hope this serves that. The Andy J Podcast. <laughs> Now, let, let me talk to you about pressure, Jamie, because obviously you've just alluded to the fact the common viewer of Made in Chelsea, we look at the, the cast members and we think, well, the thing that binds them in is everybody's got rich parents, right? Mm. But that, I'm guessing, because there's a known thing about you, I think it was your grandfather that created the McVitie's Digestive Biscuit, mm. is that right? Which is mm. amazing. But also, you've had to live with that since you were born. You know, that's, that's something that's in your family that you're expected to be the heir of and go on achieving that level. I don't think I ever felt pressure to, to replicate what uh, members of my family had done. I don't think I ever had pressure to do that. What I think I did have pressure was I went to Leeds University and I remember when I was at Leeds University, I was, st I was studying theatre and performance and I just, I just wanted to be a dancer. And I was studying <laughs> theatre and performance and I had a conversation with one of the girls there. It was my first year. And one of the girls came up to me and she went to a northern state school and I went to a southern private school. And she said, you went to a private school, I went to a state school, but we're at the same place. What was different about yours? Why was yours better? And I sat there and I couldn't really, I went, well, I don't know. So, well, why did you pay for yours? And I didn't. I think what happened was, is that coming from sort of a privileged background and understanding these things is that um, I was very lucky enough to go on 
nice holidays. I lived in a nice house. Food was on the table every single evening. I didn't have to think about it. If we went and drove to wherever, petrol was in the car. Every single time I wanted to go on holiday with my friends, I was able to. I never had to really work, uh, you know, when I was young. I didn't have to have a job in Sainsbury's or the local whatever to earn money. And I think that unconsciously, you suddenly get pressure to do that, that you want to provide that for your family as well because you want to live the same life that you were able to live. And right. then when you realize as you get older, that is hard. And it's hard to earn money and it's hard to be financially stable. And I think that became a big pressure in my early 20s where I was really concerned about have I taken, because becoming a realist, you, you didn't make money. And, and then you'd also chosen a route that wasn't typically the right one to choose and all these different things. So I struggled with that. But that gave me the mentality to start my business, Candy Kittens, and do different things because I kind of had that work ethic within me because I was conscious of not being able to do the same things for my future family, hopefully, that I was able to do. I mean, it's really interesting, Jamie, because, you know, you talk from a viewpoint, of course, you know, I, I, I didn't... You've effectively acknowledged your privilege, which I think is very is very responsible of you. But also, you know, we, I, I don't have that privilege and, you know, I don't know many people that have had that sort of upbringing either. I'm more on the side of the lady that spoke to you at Leeds. What's nice to hear is that you've accepted it and you're also sharing that actually it does come with pressure itself. And I guess crucially as well, Jamie, money is definitely not everything. What I'm interested to hear is that you're talking about, you know, you want to provide for a future family, etc. And I guess what I'm saying to you is that, you know, the way you provide for that future family is not just having millions of pounds in the bank. Yes, totally. It's about loving them and being there for them and inspiring them. And, and you have, by the sound of things, that work ethic that suggests to me already that you're going to be a responsible and mature human being to a, to a child. That's exactly it. You know, um, there's, that, there's an amazing quote by Socrates, right? So Socrates spoke of the two levels of happiness. Again, if we go really deep, the two levels of happiness. The lower level is wealth, power, fame, glory, all these kind of things, that when you achieve it, you don't really understand why you're, you're not that happy. You don't feel a sense of achievement. Mm. And the higher level is good relationships, love, passion, empathy, all those kind of things. And actually, the higher level is the one that you want to achieve. If you achieve the lower level, you actually don't become, you don't reach pure happiness and you don't reach success. The, if you reach, get the higher one, then you do reach complete success. And it took me, if I'm totally honest, a while to realize that. And I think that's probably down to myself, surrounding friends and things like that, that I thought that actually what happened is that success was all about making money. And in fact, it's totally not. Money brings you a sense of security and it brings you a sense of freedom. You, you're able to do things if you have some money. So you can go on holidays, you can buy food, you can pay for your kids to go to a theme park, right? You can do things like that. But it actually doesn't bring you happiness. What brings you happiness is actually strong relationships, good relationship with friends, doing something that you absolutely love. So having a purpose every single day. And it took me to half of my 20s, to my, late, to my late 20s, to really understand what success really was. And I kind of drum that into people now. And I do these sort of talks and things like that because we live in this world of Instagram and everyone driving Lamborghinis and the young YouTubers talking about how much money they're making and things like that. And it kind of drives the wrong message that life is about being rich. And it's definitely not about that whatsoever. Well, richness isn't wealth, in my opinion. Rich is love and appreciation and respect totally. and kindness. Jamie, let, let me ask you a question. Because, of course, you know, again, and, and I don't mean this to, to sort of... You step out of the, the bubble of, 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 a, of, a, of a reality show for a moment. 
you know, it, it seems when you watch the show or, or when you kind of follow people on Instagram or whatever that are members of the cast and so on and so forth, that all people really care about is how many likes they get and how much, you know, people they'll never meet, never run into, never have anything to do with in the real world care. How much do you actually care about that? How much do you do a story specifically thinking, oh, I hope everyone likes this and thinks I'm funny? Does, does that really matter? And I'm not judging you if it does matter to no. you, because if it does, fair enough. When Instagram and social media started, it was very addictive because you got immediate validation for whatever you put out. So you would put out a video, you put out a picture, and you would get all these likes, and the likes were a sense of appreciation, a sense of validation that you were doing the right thing. You know, there's lots of arguments to suggest why I even did a reality show in the first place. You know, why would someone go and do that? You know, there has to be some sort of situational thing going on where you probably want to gain some sort of validation. And if I'm totally honest, the reason why, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to do a reality show at the beginning is I thought it'd be fun to be famous for a bit. I thought that fame would be amazing. And I thought it would be, oh my God, what? This would be the most amazing thing. And then you realize you get to that mountain and you go, ah, it's not kind of cracked up what it's meant to be. I think that social media is, um, a, I think it's a very wonderful thing. I also think it's a very toxic thing. I believe that the problem we have with social media now is that, yes, as a creator, I suppose, as creators or as a person with a bit of influence, a person with a following, you definitely have a sense of pressure to constantly upload and put things up there and put things out there in order to get... Because I think it's the fear of being forgotten if I'm totally honest. I think that's what the fear is. So you're uploading pictures because you're thinking, if, you, if I don't upload photos and I don't do this and I don't do that, I'm going to be forgotten. Not only that, we're meant to have, as people, a village mentality, right? So we're meant to, if you had a wedding normally back in the day, you would invite 100 to 200 people, or you would, that's what you would do. You would, you would have, you know, 100 to 200 people and they'd come and experience or whatever it would be. Out of those 100 to 200 people, you would have a USP, a unique selling point. So something that was meant to you, you were either the best dressed or the funniest or the best at music or the best at going to the gym or the best mother or the best father. So you had something that you recognized as you. There we go, Jamie, you're the great, great baker, whatever it was. The problem with social media now is that you have access to millions and millions of people and you're not the best baker or the best actor, or the best musician or the best things. You're waking up every day and comparing yourself to other people who are better than you. Right. And so you then feel that you've lost your unique sense of purpose and your unique selling point. So then you feel inadequate to all these different people. And I think that's the problem that you, we are constantly comparing ourselves to other people when we shouldn't be doing that at all. We should be living our own lives and trying to be going on our own journey and reaching our own sort of success. And that's my issue with it, that I think everyone, unfortunately, not everyone, but I'd say a huge majority of people are comparing themselves to one another. And the reason why I post, going back to your original question, is because I feel like if I don't, then I'm probably not doing the same amount as other people, therefore I'm behind in the line. And I think that's the issue where it comes from. I don't mean this to sound unkind, but there's, there is more depth to you than there appears on the show. Um, yeah. I'm not suggesting that you don't come across as lovely on the show. <laughs> you do, but you don't come across necessarily as this uh, a deeper thinker. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's really refreshing to have some face time with you, and, and it, what a privilege for me. It seems, like I say from the outside looking in, that it's fun being Jamie Lang, that every day's a party, but that's, that clearly isn't the case. No, it's definitely not. I'm a huge optimistic person. I, you know, I love life. I think life is amazing. But it comes with its stresses and strains and all these different things. And, you know, if you do a reality TV show for 10 years, it does weigh in on sometimes on yourself in terms of 19, 20, 21 years old. I was this young, hyperactive, full of energy guy, and I still am. 
But when you join a television show, you almost sort of take on some sort of a persona in a weird kind of way. Right. You are yourself, but it's a heightened version. And I think for me, what happened was, is that, you know, in life, you should have times where you have your normal life and then you have your work life and then you have your normal life. For me, it was just everything. Made in Chelsea is your life. So work and life mixed together. So I had an issue, you know, for a few years where I thought I had to be, hey, 100% all the yeah. time. And if yeah. I wasn't 100% all the time, then it wasn't going to work. I thought if I wasn't getting up at six in the morning and going to the gym and then, you know, doing this and this and this and, oh, hey, how are you doing? And making everyone laugh and all this all the time, that I wasn't being the best version of myself. And so what you then had to do is you had to sort of learn that there's a great conversation going on now all about mental health and i think that's a wonderful thing and you know the you know if we you know the biggest killer for males under 45 is still suicide in the uk which is a crazy statistic right right so i think it's important for guys to sort of open up about the way they sort of handle stuff and i think for men in their 20s they kind of grow up and you kind of you start to know yourself at the beginning of your 30s, I really think. I think your 20s, you just don't know what the hell is going on. You're suddenly just going, well, what's happening here? And then your 30s, you start to sort of cool down. And for me, I'm very lucky. I have a very privileged life and I love what I do, but it comes with its stresses and its strains and its worries and all of these different things, like with everyone. The Andy J Podcast. Joining me right now, I'm going to use the word firecracker because, frankly, I can see her on the screen right now and she's looking absolutely fantastic. Wonderful singer. It is the glorious Janet Devlin. She's a new album out now called Confessional. Janet, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, you know, alive and kicking. I hope you don't mind the firecracker reference because if anybody uh, is not aware of you, you have the most incredible, huge, flaming hair that really stands out and looks amazing. Well, it comes from a bottle, so I'll send my regards to my hairdresser. You know? <laughs> <laughs> now, Janet, let's talk about your journey and, and where you've come from. You've had quite, I mean, for, you're 25 years old. Your career has spanned nearly a decade already because, of course, you came to prominence. And I don't know how much you like talking about The X Factor, but that's, that's the beginning of your journey as far as we, the public, are concerned. 16 years old, walking in, out in front of Gary Barlow and co. Oh, God, it makes me feel old. It's like 10 years of doing something. Do you know what I mean? It's crazy. But no, I don't mind talking about it because um, it was good. Like, it was, it was what it was. It was a really good experience for me. It taught me a lot. It taught me that, like, I'm less likely to self-implode if I've got a goal, especially if it's music orientated. Um, it's only just weird sometimes because it was only like maximum eight months of your life. But it's like the thing that you're like most known for, if you know. It's kind of like having an English class like years and years ago. And that's like the only thing you're known for was that one year in English literature. And you're like... Mind you, at 16, eight months is a pretty massive chunk of time, isn't it? I mean, that must have felt yeah. like, wow, this is, this is real and it's happening and OMG. Yeah, but it was like the actual TV, so like the live shows is where things really get serious. And that's only about three months of your life. Felt like forever, though, I won't lie. Yeah, it definitely did. It, it, it was a long time for me, but like it was good. It taught me hard work, like getting up at stupid o'clock in the morning and getting to bed at stupid o'clock in the morning, you know. So I appreciated that little baptism of fire to the industry. Yeah. Well, I mean, from, from what I can remember, and like you've said, it's a decade ago, so slightly hazy memories, but from what I can remember, two key things stood out in terms of the public meeting you. The first one was your phenomenal voice, and it's just joyful that you are still singing. The new, the new album, I listened to it on the way here this morning, it's absolutely glorious. You know, you've got a heck of a pair of pipes on you. Love your vocal. And the other thing, of course, 
and this is probably less exciting for you as you were you were kind of wrongly or rightly labelled as the shy one. You know, you got this tag because you came out, you were you're nervous, you're anxious, and that, that's followed you around a bit, hasn't it? Yeah, it definitely did. And for years it was it was true. Like I was shy, but not for the, the cute sweet reasons I think that everybody thought I was shy. I was I was shy because I was I wasn't always, but then whenever I suffered from anorexia at about like fifteen um and depression like depression hit me like a, a slap in the face when I turned like 12 years old because I was already self-harming by 12 oh, wow. so I was just very sad and I didn't believe in myself I always had that like why would anyone want to talk to me why would anyone want to hear my opinion like I don't matter all that kind of stuff and then when I started to like develop confidence and actually really work hard on myself and obviously therapy all those things find them people were like oh I miss the old you and I'm like I'm so sorry but that's just like not gonna happen I'm not gonna like live in this painful existence of self-hatred just because you think it's cute because <laughs> it hurt panic attack no fun my guy like I just I'm like I feel so much better now and if it means it hurts the feelings of like a handful of people online then like that's none of my business like too right. People online, ignore them. You'll never meet them. It really doesn't matter. But so, so you're talking about how, you know, at, at 12, you were having this kind of sadness, this sorrow. And, and I mean, you have really battled with, with demons for a long time, haven't you? I mean, just if you're happy to talk us through it, you know, firstly, I'm, I'm, I'm working on the assumption that you're, you're in quite a good place right now. Is, is that right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I'm in a very, very good place now. Like, I had therapy yesterday. My therapist is like, look at you and all your coping mechanisms. I'm like, yeah, dude. Uh, no, I'm in the best part. Like, I'm in a really good place in my life. And I feel really blessed that I have so much self-knowledge for 25. Like, I feel like I know how to handle myself now as somebody who has a laundry list of mental health issues. Like, that's, that is what it is. I can't change that, but I can change my attitude towards it and how I deal with my daily life. And I've, I feel like I'm doing good there. But um, my past definitely was not, not so good, Jeff. I started self-harming by 12. Like, I always had a negative voice in my head. That was just a given. Like, I just didn't like myself. And then I suppose being picked on in school didn't really help or anything. And then I, I had such low self-esteem by 15 that I thought that, I'm no good at anything, so I and I and I'm not the best at anything, so I may as well be the skinniest, just as some form of like achievement. Um, so I was like 14, 15, and then I got better. And then when I started doing TV, I made sure that I was a healthy weight because I didn't want to be somebody's role model for self destruction. Like I hated this notion that girls would look at me and go, "Oh, she can get away with being so skinny. Why can't I?" Because that was definitely the mentality that I had. So I, I'd gotten over those like, as much as I could. They came back to bite me later on in my life and things. Um, but again, I worked through it and I, and I got out the other end. But like, there was a lot of stuff. Like, there was a sexual assault that happened when I was 15. Um, there was fraud. I got like basically six figures taken away from me. So I woke up at 18, bankrupt, uh, which was great. And then I hit a slippery slope of, drinking too much so I was an alcoholic officially and then I also turned to benzodiazepines which are sleeping medication which I abused for a good seven years eventually I just was like hey how about 
we take all this energy that we've put into hating ourselves. Fun concept. We use that to love ourselves. And obviously that's terrifying for somebody who's only known the negative voice in their head. And it took years. It really did. But like, I'm now that annoyingly optimistic person that when a bad thing happens, I'm like, oh, well, you know, maybe that's the universe's way of like doing this or that. And it's annoying to a lot of people, but it, it is like my, my coping mechanism is just like looking on the bright side at all times, no matter what. Well, good. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear you have the coping mechanism in place because it sounds like, you know, you've, you've just listed you know, a litany of, th of issues that someone so young should never have to face. But of course, so many youngsters and so many adults go through all these horrible things. But, you know, I don't want to just kind of revisit them as little bullet points because these are huge moments in your life that have had massive, massive impact. You've referenced sexual assault. You've, you've referenced, uh, you know, being an alcoholic. You've talked about losing a co colossal amount of money. And of course, you've obviously been thrown into the public eye very, very quickly unprepared for that, having had horrible experiences in your childhood with, with schools and, and bullies and, and this inner voice that you talk about. And it's just, you know, when you see that journey, it, it's, it's remarkable that you are now and glorious to see smiling on the other side and bright and positive and effervescent and ready for it. But of course, you know, this, this is not to just kind of skate through the, the mountains and mountains of, of understandably incredibly dark times that you've obviously had to face. Yeah, no, it was... It was a lot, it was hard, and I just can't believe that I put myself through so much pain all the time. I thought to exist was pain, and I thought to make art, you had to suffer. And that's not true. <laughs> you don't have to suffer to make art at all. And I think for me, like, there was obviously numerous times where, not obviously, but there was numerous times where I tried to take my own life. And what bothers me about that and the amount of people that do actually have suicidal ideations is that if I'd been successful, I would have only have known the pain of existence. All I would have known is being an alcoholic who hated themselves, who thought that the world was just not for them. But now coming out the other side, I'm so grateful every single day. Like, just the little things like when a stranger smiles at you, when you see a video of a funny dog on the internet, when you watch those videos of soldiers coming home, when I look at my own life and all the, the joy I've had, like recording the album, like with so many funny, amazing Irish musicians, with a producer that I love to pieces, all of those things I never would have got to experience. So it's like, I want, I would, you just want to give that knowledge to somebody who's in it. You know, you just want to be like, I swear to God, it gets so much better. It really does. Like, I'm just every day blessed that I sucked at that, <laughs> that I failed. I've never been so happy to fail in my whole life. Like, but I am. And every single day really is a blessing. Like, I know it sounds so cheesy, but like, as somebody who's really been through it, like, even a bad day these days is nowhere near what my bad days used to be like. And I just, I don't know, waking up every day just being like, oh my God, for some reason I'm somehow still doing music. Like, this is my job. Like, it, it gives me a purpose. And like, I think that's why I love what I do so much. Like, I have goals and things to work towards. Like, I would suggest that there are three good things happening here, Janet. The first one is you're alive. The yep. second is that you're feeling bright. 
And the third, of course, is that you're still doing the job that you love, which is, which is a blessing for all of us, of course. Was there a moment in this darkness, and it sounds like the, the darkness was a long, pervading time in your life, was there a moment where you did have a, 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 a corner to turn and you felt, this is, I have to do this now, I have to get out of this, or was it somebody or something or a, a conversation or a, a trigger point which, which snapped you out of it or, or just brought you slightly towards a, a happier time? I remember my mum having to fly over to England um, after I went missing for like a few days again because of drink. And she took me to the doctors. The doctor recommended me to go to like this drug centre, this drugs and alcohol centre that I'd already been to. And I'd already done a programme and it hadn't worked. Uh, but anyway, I was like, right, fine. My mummy's here. I'll do what my mummy says and I'll go. And then the woman was like, oh, we don't actually have any spaces left, um, but I'll put you on the waiting list and all the rest. Best, the best blessing ever, though. She was like, in the meantime, here's here's like some meetings locally for AA. Okay. And I had been to somebody before and they said, oh, don't go to AA. It's just a room full of relapsers and blah, blah, blah. So I never went. And I said that to her. I was like, I was told this, like, it's like a room full of relapsers and there's no point in going. And she's like, whoever told you that? just like remove that from your memory and just go so a few days later I went and then I literally I still stand by it was like the first day of the rest of my life going in there and just relating to people not feeling alone their stories resonated with me and it was like a woman's meeting and look I just like sat in this room at 10 o'clock on a Sunday with all these women who looked amazing were successful were owning life and they were laughing at their pain. And I was like, no, this I can get on board with. I want whatever you've got. That's exactly what I want. So that for me was the, the start of me starting to get better. So, I mean, it sounds like the key take home, because, of course, you had these preconceptions that AA wouldn't be wouldn't be right because of what you had filtered through to you. But it sounds to me like the take home to, to anyone that's going through any sort of challenge. And of course, you've had the extreme versions but there are plenty of people out there and we all live our own truths, don't we? There are plenty of people out there that are just feeling low for reasons they maybe can't put their fingers on. And the message, I guess, from your experience is whatever you do, however you're feeling, remember there's another day and start talking to people. Literally, talking to people is the biggest part of it. And I think a lot of times when we act out on whatever, it usually tends, for, like, tends to be this like, inability to just be with ourselves. So I feel like isolation is bringing that up for a lot of people, like because they are on their own, they're with their own company for so long that it's like if if you if you don't like being alone right now, you're in bad company and you need to reach out and you need to talk and you like it's a hard time. So it's it's okay to be struggling and it's okay to struggle whenever this is all over and life goes back to normal. If you don't talk about it, the only person you're hurting is yourself you're putting yourself in unnecessary pain and I don't want to sound like a preacher it's just like it's just something I've learned like for me personally I have to go to therapy because I feel like I need to pay someone to listen to my bullcrap you know I'm like I just I have I have a lot of stuff going on I don't want to just offload to my friends all the time whereas like he has to listen to me because I'm paying him do you know yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. Although I just want to say, Janet, you can always call me. Um, listen, I, I think it's quite important for anyone listening, thinking, well, hang on, 
you know, who do I talk to? Where do I start? I just want to give out the Samaritans number because uh, mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, a, a point of call that anyone should make however they're feeling if they just think, you know, maybe I should talk to someone. The Samaritans number is 116123. That's 116123. Janet, I'm certainly not trying to trivialise anything you've been through, but, you know, the, hearing you talk, it sort of makes me feel, you know, you need to get this down in a book. Well, you have rather yes. conveniently. And this isn't me moving the conversation on to talk product, by the way. It's just the fact is that, you know, anybody that's just, just tuned in and kind of hearing the tail end of what you're saying and thinking, goodness me, this young lady has lived a life in the last nine, 10 years. How has she managed it? You unpack all of this in, in a new book, don't you? Yeah. So I, I talk about all of the things in the book, all of the, everything I've been through, like, it's not all negative. There is some happy stuff in there. Um, but realistically, yeah, it's, it's, I know people are going to think like she's 25. Why is she writing an autobiography? But it's not so much an autobiography because it doesn't really go from like, I was born to where I am now. You know, it's more specifically on these topics as around three stories for each topic and how I got out of it. Um, and like, I obviously did the book for a selfish reason. I just wanted to get the stuff off my chest, have it down on paper. So it's like, has no more ownership of me. Absolutely. Well, it helped you and now it's helping them. And, and if anyone's familiar with your songs, you know, you're a fabulous lyricist. I love your way with words. So if the book echoes the songs and the style that you write in, then I imagine it's extremely raw and also very poetic. It's a very raw book. Yeah. Like, I feel like obviously that word can be a bit overused, but it's the word that people keep saying. So I'm like, well, it must be that then. It must be raw. Um, because I wasn't trying to hide anything. Like the amount of times my editor would call me and be like, are you, are you sure you want to put that in the book? Like you're aware people are going to read this. And I'm like, yeah, the fact that you're saying that makes me know that that story has to be in the book, actually. But lyrically on the album, I wanted to ensure that it wasn't too self-indulgent. So the whole thing is bathed in metaphor. So you might think, it might be a song about an eating disorder, but it sounds like a bad breakup song because I still wanted people to have the freedom to do what music is brilliant for. And that's like interpret it to your own life, you know? So I still didn't want to lose that magic of music. And that's why I did the book so that people could get to know what actually happened or they could just listen to this as a piece of music and enjoy it. Absolutely. Well, the, the album is called Confessional. I, I had it on in the car on the way here. I'd made the mistake, perhaps, of reading a little review just before I put it on. And the review <laughs> said that it's music that wears its heart and its scars on its sleeve, which actually was a very good way of putting it. Because then there I am driving, stuck in traffic, and I've got tears coming down my face because I realised <laughs> the journey that you've been on, you know, and I knew what we we're going to be talking about. And it was like, oh, my goodness, it's all there. I mean, it's really powerful stuff, Janet. You know, you... You've really let the let the world in, haven't you? Yeah, but it's it's because I don't mind oversharing. Like oversharing is my brand, you know? And I don't mind. It doesn't negatively impact me to be honest and vulnerable. In fact, I enjoy being honest and vulnerable and the fact that I can get it across in my music 
it makes me happy like I I think that's because I like that kind of music so the fact that you know some people listen to the album and cry I'm like yeah <laughs> feel those feelings <laughs> I'll take that as a win. Boom. We did it. <laughs> we did it. Although, I mean, it is, again, it's, it's really important to talk about the journey. And it's, I don't want to say it's conclusion because, of course, you know, we're all learning and we, we wake up one morning and we feel something and then, you know, we'll end the day feeling differently. But let's just talk about the, the, the title of the last track on the album. It's called Better Now. That's mm. the last song on the album. Now, you, you, you kind of looked at me there. You, you pulled a face, which obviously the listeners can't see, but you pulled a face yeah. as if it, that's a bit cringe. But, <laughs> but... Um, no, it's because it's the song that gets uh, misinterpreted. Okay. So I wanted originally to end this album on Holy Water, which is this up and clappy, happy-go-lucky, like, I'm better, life's good, amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all this. I've, I've let go of my demons. And then Better Now is supposed to sound like, it's actually ironic. It was because I was working really hard at my recovery and all of these things. And on the outside, everybody looking in was like, oh, she's doing so good. She's doing so well. And I realized that I was actually like gripping my well-being with my fingernails. And I actually wasn't better. And I ended up relapsing and going to rehab. Um, so like the lyrics in that song are actually just like, oh yeah, look how better I am. I'm so better. The Andy J Podcast. It is the sensational, the glorious, the drop dead gorgeous, Katie Mellower. How are you doing, Katie? I'm really good, Andy. What an introduction. Seriously, thank you so much. I'm, I'm delighted we're talking again. I want to talk about the album. I want to talk about the video and all kinds of things. But first, I hope you don't mind. I actually want to talk about you because... You know, listening to the track and then hearing you talk about it, I can hear the joy in your voice, you know, and it's, I was thinking about this beforehand, you know, you've, you've had seven colossal albums, you know, you've, you've got all these kind of, all these tags that go with your career that are almost intimidating when you think about it. What, what you have to live up to from, from album number seven, for the very, the very first album, of course, that, that kind of dropped and, and you've just had success after success after success. And you've had a bit of a pause, you know, you, you've had a little bit of a break. So coming back with number eight, there's a fair amount of pressure there, isn't there? There's always pressure. And you know what? I wish I could say that it got easier the more records you make, but it really doesn't. You know, and I think I'm finally starting to realize that every time you begin a new serious work, you know, like a, like a studio album, you're back to square one. You know, you really... If you really want to make it good, you have to just almost like invent everything from scratch. And one of the hardest things is is what you're talking about there, which is finding a justifiable reason to do it. Because, you know, there is something very ego-based around being an artist and putting your work out there. And so you kind of have to keep, you really have to have a reason to convince yourself deep down that you know, it's really worth doing this and continuing and, you know, working even harder than you have before. So, yeah, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and what I love about that is is that, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to kind of uh, make assumptions here, Katie, but, you know, the, the fact is you've had so much success and, and James, of course, former world superbike champion and, and you know, has, has, has his own musical career as well. So, you know, projecting could be completely wrong, of course, but projecting 
my assumption is that the, the pair of you could live a really comfortable life if you didn't do anything else. You know, you, you could be fine. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you'd, be, you'd be all right. You don't necessarily need to go out there and, and break the bread, as it were, and earn the money. So this isn't necessarily about kind of seeing how much cash you can bring in. This is about passion, right, isn't it? This is about you kind of saying, I, I, I'm expressing myself. This is what I do. I'm an artist and I love it. Am I right there? Am I, am I being Yeah, cheeky? it's about, um, I think it's about, you know, well, the, your life's work, you know, like for me, the life's work is making records. I'm still deeply fascinated by it. I feel like we have so much more to do in our industry as a whole, like not just me as an artist. And I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm still on the quest to try and find the best way of making records. And then, of course, life changes constantly. So, you know, you want your works to react to that and to talk about that. So, yeah, there's a lot in there that you try and put in. When, when you're writing, because like you say, you've, you've done the lyrics for A Love Like That and they're, they're, they're beautiful. Do you find that when you're writing that, that it's a, a, a sort of a form of therapy for you? It is actually, yeah. It's a form of therapy, but I also try not to use it as a way of just kind of putting in, you know, all the bad things that happen in my life. I actually believe the work itself does help you cope with things that go on in your life. But then I feel like if you keep writing and writing and writing, like I've had it where a transformation happens, where if you really play with a theme or a topic and it clicks into like that next stage it can tr seriously transform you and it can give you a sense of understanding of yourself which you know which you didn't have before to experience that as you create music and you know write lyrics is a seriously profound thing it's difficult to try and describe it in you know in an interview but um I guess you have to try, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, listen, we, I can ask questions and we can see where we go. I mean, Kate, Kate, did you mind me kind of delving down a little bit? Because if you're not comfortable with this, I completely respect that. But but it's it's a known thing. So I feel like it's my, my kind of job to ask. Yeah, this, of course. This this show is about driven. It's, it's about what drives celebrities and achievers, what keeps them going, what makes them stand up when times are tough. You know, we all sort of think of celebrities and, and, and famous folk as, as having an easy life. But actually... More often than not, the more people I speak to, the more I realise that it's it's quite the reverse. And you yourself, I think it was about a decade ago now, you you, you had a really tough time. You had a, you had a nervous breakdown, and and you had some time out in a, in a in a hospital for a, for a few weeks, didn't you? I did indeed, yeah. But you know what? I think with what I mean, we've now seen this celebrity lifestyle for so many years, um, and I think most people are aware that it isn't, you know, uh, the glamorous beautiful life that it appears to be like the spectacle of it has to be the pretense that it's glorious <laughs> and it's glamorous and it's easy but I think any intelligent person you know can look at what has happened to you know some of the greats um, in our industry and in the film industry to realize that you know there's a lot of dangers that come with the job I find particularly in the acting business I really um, marvel at anyone who decides to go into that profession because you have to give up your your face and your name. And essentially, as an actor, you really are there to serve the vision of the writers and directors and sometimes the film studios. There's an element of that in my job because I guess, you know, it's my name and face on the front of the record. But I think at least after a number of years of, you know, making records, you start to realize that you can kind of create that that world you know and you can create the actual 
the record and the whole vision that comes with it. And so you, you kind of, you are sort of holding on to the reins a little bit more than say in the acting profession. Yes. But yes. about your question about what drives people. Well, you know what? I actually think what's more interesting is, and this comes into why I believe I got sick in 2010. You know, once you reach these incredible heights, there is this thing in our culture, or maybe it's just the way I was raised where, okay, you reach that, but you don't stop to kind of take it in and soak it in and be like, great, you know, that felt awesome. Mm. Let's just relax a little bit. You're instantly in the mode of, okay, what's next? You know, like, how do we get to the next goal? And like, how do we achieve this? And how do we do? I actually think, you know, really, truly great works of art can be created when you sort of take a more holistic approach and you and you do let your body and mind to recover and soak in the reality of of you know whatever success you have um because if you don't then you're on a constant treadmill as we all know i wish i could say i realized it was remarkable and crazy but because i was so young you know there was a part of me thought this is what happens in the music industry in england Mm -hmm. and it took me years to actually realize in amongst my friends you know so many people that i know would love to do this job and actually realizing that these successes don't happen that quickly and that easily. I mean, I was a complete anomaly, really, you know, all our projects were an anomaly. And yeah, it was also, on the other hand, I've always had quite a kind of, I don't know, like I want to use the word cowboy attitude to life, where I'm like, okay, I'm diving in deep. Let's just have fun. And plus, as I said before, there just wasn't the time because it was like, okay, now that after the first album, Close Things to Crazy being so big, it was like, okay, how do we get Europe, you know, and then it was nine million bicycles. And it's like, how do we get America and Japan and Australia? You know, that's a crazy formula to always be on that treadmill. The Andy J Podcast. It's Miles Nazaire. How are you doing, Miles? I'm good. Thank you for having me. So look, I was thinking about this as I was driving over. I was thinking about, you know, perception versus reality and all the rest of it and stepping into what you know is an established show and you know they're going to take it. So I was, I've jotted down, what would you consider defines you as to how you're seen in the public eye, right? So there's Made in Chelsea, there's your exes, there's fitness, modeling, performing. What is it, which one of those is is the one that you think defines you and and uh, that's what the public, when they think of Miles, do they think, do they think Chelsea? Do they think exes? Do they think that's a very good looking boy? Do they think modeling? I mean, what is it, and what is it you want them to think? I think I'm trying to navigate my my look, I guess, uh, as I've been going on on the show and and trying to start different kind of projects. I'm trying to, for me, I would love for people to go, oh, Miles, the fitness fanatic um, who is a motivational speaker, who loves to inspire people and push themselves to their max. That's what I'd love. Right. Unfortunately, because, you know, I am on a reality TV show, the main thing is um, that's Miles who breaks women's hearts <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> as a, the young Lothario who, who, who's single and, and is living this bachelor lifestyle which you know in you know I'm you know I'm 24 I'm still young I'm still enjoying my life but I also want to be able to uh, it's only now recently because of my fitness kind of journey I've been getting a lot more kind of people really interested in what I'm doing apart from the the Chelsea life yeah but I'll never take it away from Chelsea you know Chelsea is what I started with and I love it and it's it's still fun to this day I love being on the show but I would like it to be more okay then Mars is a bit more than just yeah that. it's the foundation from which yeah, you build it makes 100%. it makes a lot of sense yeah, yeah. and it's 
you know, you're clearly very intelligent. I must say it's, it's, it's sort of having a few minutes with you is very apparent that you've got uh, quite a lot going on. You know, thanks. you're not just kind of hanging out because you're a good looking boy. You, yeah. you've, you've got a lot going on up there, which is impressive. Mm. Um, don't mean that to sound passionate. No, 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 at no at all, by the way. But, you know, you never really know until you meet someone. Yeah, you know? yeah, of course. But, I mean, when I think about sort of the opportunities that you now have available to you, you know, you've got this really fascinating opportunity to go, right, I am defined as what? Yeah. And I can take this to this whole new level. And it sounds to me like, yeah, you've got the fitness thing going on, but you also want to inspire people. And yeah. You want to kind of help them. And that's a really, really important platform. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the show is called Driven. So I always ask people, what drives you? And I know you're, you're kind of 24, so you're very young to, yeah, be, yeah. to be knowing the answers to these things. But at the moment, right now, what is it? What is your, your reason to get up each day? I think for me in recent times is I, the fact that I can touch so many people's emotions on my social media and the way I kind of like talk about it. I'm, my big thing on Instagram is my stories. I always kind of try to be as real as I can to, to help people. And I, I'm, to this day, I get you know, loads of messages. Thank you so much for you know, being real and being honest. You know, when I have my bad days, I will say I'm having a very bad day. I don't feel happy. And for me, it's super important because I will have people going, oh my God, that's Miles from Main Chelsea. And he's always happy and he's always doing it. Yes, I mean, most of my you know, time, I'm, I'm trying to be as positive as I can, but sometimes it isn't. And if I can help someone see that I am also that normal guy and I'm not just a TV personality, yeah. then I've done my job and I'm really happy. And this is why I always say, well, that's why I kind of said about the, you know, the motivational speaker, not in the literal sense, but I try to be as honest as I can. And what drives me is being able to uh, change, I guess the change that influencing way of being an influencer or, or reality or whatever on, on your social media is pushing that kind of boundary and showing that there's more to it and showing there's more to us, I guess, yeah, uh, nice. in the public eye, being in the public eye. And, and I, I want to be able to motivate people because if I'm real, then you can see uh, I'm not trying to hide behind a screen. I'm trying to um, push myself and push my audience as much as I can. I hope you don't mind me bringing it up, but you mentioned you know, that everyone has had some mental yeah, health yeah, challenges. Yeah. Is that including yourself? Yeah, yeah, massively. I, I suffered with, um, when I was 16, I would have, six to eight panic attacks a day. Wow. Which was horrendous. It was a very bad time for me. It was a very tricky time. I was 16 and, and I had something had triggered my, my panic attacks and kind of mental health. And then I luckily enough came out of it. Um, never really came back, which I was so happy about, but I was so passionate about the mental health community, I guess, and, and helping that because it's something that I've gone through and I remember how intense it was for me. Yeah. Um, and that's why we all, you know, and, and myself and Tristan, who's on the show, he, he went through something really, uh, really hard and, and we actually grew even more as friends because we started talking to each other. Right. And I think the biggest thing is, especially with men, emotionally, it is very hard for guys to speak to one another and tell each other how they feel. Yeah. Right? And there's still a bit of caveman mentality 100%. around. 100%. As much as we joke around with each other, and I will still joke like that with my friends, there is a huge you know, problem in men's mental health where we are not open enough to each other. 
So that's what we, as a group, we're really passionate about that, and we uh, we like to make sure that we we talk about it a lot on our socials, and we talk about it on the show, we talk about it within each other because we have to. Yeah, you know, it is a big problem. I feel females are a lot easier to to kind of um, talk about their emotions a lot easier. So I think we're we're trying to change that a little bit. So how did you break the cycle of panic attacks? What was it that was it just talking or was it? So it was two things. Craziest thing, two crazy things that happened. My dad uh, had one of his clients. He 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 knew uh, she did this weird kind of um, meditation thing. I don't know what it was. She laid me down, and at the time, this is weird. I've, had, I've actually never spoken about this on any any oh, channel or anything. But for opening up. At, at the time, I was numb, so you could talk to me. I can I can see you. I can hear you. I couldn't hear anyone. It was very weird. And all I all would happen is that little things would happen and my heart would start racing and I'd drop to the floor and I, I couldn't breathe or anything like that. It must have been terrifying. Oh, it was, it was the worst time of my life. And yeah. this one day we go to see my father's uh, friend and she sat me down and started talking. There was music in the background. It was very weird. It was, I felt like I was in a spa at the time. And then she, she just spoke and spoke and I kind of drifted off and then she spoke and she said two things. She said, imagine your whole body is wrapped into this blue cocoon that's lifted you up. And I honestly, to that day, I, I, I felt like my whole body just literally was floating in the air. I could see myself floating. It was wow. really crazy. Woke up, felt a bit weird. Didn't really understand what was happening, but I felt like I kind of was more aware of where I was, which yeah. was weird. Yeah. And then one day, the craziest thing happened. Again, numb, couldn't hear anyone. I would listen to music every single day. I would uh, not blank everyone out of my life and, and kind of just you know stay to my own. And then this one person, Billy Dudley, I always met Billy from school, looks at my phone. I had the new phone, I think, the okay. Sony Ericsson phone, yeah. back the flip phone, one of those. And uh, he said, oh my God, I love your phone, can I see it? And I literally took out my earphone and said, oh yeah. And from that day, I never had a panic attack. Wow. And everything left. I opened I suddenly spoke to someone. Wow. And then it was gone. Is there any sort of shadow that stays with you? Because you, you've had that. Are you yeah. aware or, or afraid that, the, that that might come back? Or do you know, do you know what? I got this, it's never. There's always moments where there'll be like, a okay, this could happen again, but I know how to control it now. So if I ever feel anxious or I ever feel weird or anything, I know how to overcome it. And I, I know those, it was six months of horror and now i know how to kind of manage it if it ever did happen the andy j podcast suzanne shaw how you doing suzanne ah <laughs> thank you one intro thank you very much <laughs> well i'm just really really thrilled to be chatting to you and suzanne we've got so much to talk about if you're happy i'd like to talk about mental health because you've had yeah. you know various different challenges and battles and issues but i suppose to get into that we should probably paint the picture which is of course that mm. you know hearsay 20 years almost 20 years ago that yeah. hearsay was was put together via the power of television and of course, yep. you're still the only UK act to have a number one single and a number one album at the same time, which is uh, crazy. I didn't even know that. Are we still the... Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. That is great. It's great, though. I mean, we were the very first band um, to be formed uh, through a reality show. Um, so it is, it's mad that it's, it's 20 years ago. In fact, it's 20 years ago to this day we were in the final auditions. Um, and then it's 20 years next March that we released the single that the, the pop stars was um, uh, came out on TV. So, um, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? 
I can't believe it's been that length of time. Um, and all by accident, I auditioned for for the show. Um, I don't know if you remember the the magazine. In fact, it's still it's the Stage Magazine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I read the uh, the article in there. He said something like, "Do you want to be a pop star?" And I was like. Yeah, all right then. Give it a go. Yeah, give it, give it a go. Uh, At the time, I was auditioning for Godspell the Musical and uh, for Maria in Coronation Street. Um, And actually, it was like I was on the fence: should I go? Should I not? And then one of my mates said, "Um, "Will you? uh, Do you want to go to this audition together?" And she only asked me because I had a car and I could give her a lift. Um, (laughs) So, so, but yeah, yeah, great friend. But the funny thing is, is that the car. So the car was left to me in my granddad's will, but under the provisions that I would drive my nan everywhere. So, um, so I had the, my, this this Ford, white Ford Orion, uh, was my very first car. Um, but I had to drop my nan off at Berry Market before going for the audition at Granada Studios and queuing up for the audition. So I dropped my nan off at Berry Market, queued up for the audition, uh, did my bit, got through the first round. And then I thought, oh, God, my nan's at Berry Market. Didn't have a mobile back then. Yeah, so uh, so I had to go to the phone box. She didn't have a mobile, so I couldn't I couldn't ring Berry Market and go, can you find my nan? <laughs> um, so so I had to ring my uncle to then go and pick her up because I, nev- I knew I wasn't going to make it uh, to pick a collector from Berry Market. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was strange because I got through that round. And then uh, I remember Nigel Lithgow saying, there's going to be five people in this band. It could be a girl band. It could be a boy band. It could be a mix. Uh, but these five people, they're going to move to London. They're going to have a million pound record deal. They're going to live in a house. Uh, and we're going to make them pop stars. And I thought, wow, what five lucky people. That sounds ace. Thinking, crap, I've got to pick my nan up from Berry Market. <laughs> so um, <laughs> uh, never in a million years did I think I would have been in the, the final lineup. Well, like you say, it, it sounds ace. I mean, the idea of it does sound amazing. You know, mm. five, five strangers who have only one thing in common, which is they can all perform, thrown together yeah. in, this, in this crazy house with, you know, with a million pound contract. Was it as good as it sounds? <laughs> well, I mean, you've just kind of put it into the right words. Put these five strangers who have one thing in common, throw them into a house, and let's really see what we do to their mental health. <laughs> Right. I mean, I mean, it was it was a great experience. I was 19 years old. I was never going to say no to this experience. Of course, you know, I was going to be a pop star. This is going to be absolutely amazing. What I didn't get told was that, you know, I was going to face um, the fact that actually it was not going to be about our music. It was going to be about our lives, what had happened to us previously, who had we dated. The papers were going to go rife for it. They were going to... Um, go after our ex-boyfriends and and find out all these intimate details and it it became less about our music because we were a story about a band being put together these five kids that were came off the street danny you know the ex-cleaner became a pop star kim had two kids she lived on a council estate she's now a pop star um noel from cardiff um Suzanne from Berry, and then you've got Mylene, the musician, who uh, who's ended up uh, becoming a pop uh, singer instead of a, a classical um, artist. So it was a great story. Yeah. So it was never going to be about our music. It was always going to be about our lives. Um, and unfortunately, that that took its toll. There was a lot of public humiliation uh, individually for, for each one of us. And I think in the end, we could no longer keep fighting against the papers. 
um, and keep fighting against the fact that we were we were stories, uh, we were gossip, um, and we weren't. It was never going to be about our music, and I think that that was something that we all had to learn, and not just us as a band, um, but also uh, the network and the record label and the management. It was all brand new, and everyone was trying to figure out how to deal with this. Um, and unfortunately, this experiment um, just kind of left five people fighting for um, survival, I suppose. You know, we as soon as the record company, as soon as we decided that we didn't want to be together as a band, that was it. You know, we were left to our own devices and having to pick up the pieces when suddenly everything has been done for you. There was no mentoring. It, it was tough for everybody. I mean, I don't think I could blame anybody i could blame the papers for sure um you know i think i think <laughs> i think they wouldn't be able to get away with what they got away with now did you, did um, you get some sticks suzanne because i remember i remember danny in particular got singled out for for various yeah. reasons and I, you know we don't have to go into that but i can remember thinking geez this poor kid you know he's he's one of the lads yeah. that, we, that we voted in and and you know, you, you sort of yeah. felt, as the public, you felt a degree of ownership of you guys because we'd voted for you and we'd wanted you to be there and, and all of that. Mm. But obviously, you know, and we'd watched, I think more important, we had watched your journey, your evolution yeah. to see who would get through, et cetera. In fact, did we vote for you? I'm, I'm, I'm maybe getting we, wrong. Did the public yeah. vote? We did. No, it wasn't. No. no, it wasn't a public vote. No, um, it was we were chosen by uh, the judges. That's right. So, in actual fact, really, it was more of a documentary of how a band was being put together. That's right. Um, and I think the, the final show was finishing on alive with Davina McCall um, announcing that we'd got to number one with our single. Um, and it was it was more of the journey of this uh, putting the band together as as, as recording. Yes, um, that's right. That was before the days of premium line numbers to vote for so and so, etc. Yeah, yes, that's right. So, did, yeah. so, so as I say, I mean, obviously, I remember Danny getting some real grief, and I and I, I seem to recall Kim didn't have the easiest of rides in in some of the red tops. Mm. But but did, did you get some some grief? Because I know you got some very unnecessary attention after the band with you know your your ex yeah. and so on, but. Did yeah, I, I, yeah, very. I think it was very much only ever about my love life in in the papers. Um, what I what happened to me is that I got a lot of people selling out on me, um, ex boyfriends selling their stories, um, ex friends, yeah, people along the way. So for me, it was it was more so about that rather than the tabloids going in for the kill about how I looked or or who I was. Um, yeah, so it, for me, it was it was a big trust thing. People that I thought uh, were my friends, um, people I thought I could trust, just everything, my intimate details with, um, uh, pretty much all sold out on me. So I kind of came away from it, and uh, still really struggle today with trusting people. Really? Um, so that has been my fight. My personal journey has been the fight to being able to trust. Um, uh, people in my life pe uh, be able to get close to people in fact you know it, it, it was really it was really tough because I, I even blamed my dad um a lot of the time for selling out on me um and unfortunately I can't apologize for to him because he's passed away now but when in reality you know it, a lot of hacking was going on at, in the time of the band as well so so it was a yeah it was a it was a tough time and I've, I've had to go through a lot of trauma and a lot of self-discovery on how I get over over that gosh i'm really I'm, I'm really sorry to hear this suzanne because it's you know as a member of the public you don't really think about these things do you you just mm. kinda, you just kind of think 
oh, okay, well, there's a there's a you know famous person. They must be really loaded, and their life must be easy. You know, there's just this kind of assumption yeah. that because you're famous, you you've got an easy life, and you've got all the money you could ever need. You know, the idea that you've lost friends, fell out with family, etc. I'm I'm guessing yeah. I'm not putting words in your mouth here. It's a question rather than a statement. If I could offer you the opportunity to go back and not stand in that queue, you know, not audition, not be in here, yeah. say, knowing what you know, would you still audition or would you have? I'm not that? sure. I've got to be honest. I'm not sure. And I think because I was I was very much on a road of um, going down the acting and musical theatre to, to, to route. Um, I was um, auditioning for big soaps at the time and dramas. So I think maybe if I'd have known what I know now, I would have just maybe continued down in my first love, my first passion. Um, but then you can never say never. You know, I, I have in all of the crap that came with it, there was equally abundance of wonderful, amazing life experiences and um, and life-changing opportunities as well. Um, I was able to to help my family in ways that I never could have imagined um, financially. Um, I just think it's it's quite important to to realise that. I think with success of what people think success is, which is fame and fortune, I think people generally forget that we're humans too and we have feelings and that actually fame and fortune doesn't make you invincible and make you strong. Um, it kind of just puts you in the firing line for a lot of abuse and grief. Um, and I think it's such a shame that we we think success is fame and fortune. And really, the way I look at success now is happiness and actually enjoying your family and, and, and you know, being comfortable in your own skin. The Andy J Podcast. I'm really pleased to welcome Catherine Ryan to the show. Catherine, you're about to tell me, I believe, that I'm, well, what I've suspected for some time, a bit of an average Brit, because I'm not a huge fan of olives, blue cheese or oysters. Really? How do you feel about Marmite? I love it. Aha! So, yes, I have been learning about new research with recipe box company Gusto, and they've surveyed people across the nation, 29% of us, don't like Marmite. 34% do not like oysters. And I'm with you on a lot of those. But we're learning that if you mix flavors in the right way, you can actually learn to like foods that you thought you didn't like. I mean, is this going to turn us all into super chefs, Catherine? Is this the plan? We just kind of fuse a load of things and suddenly we like what we what we didn't believe we would? Genuinely, yes. Because they say that if you don't like an ingredient then you won't cook with it even for guests and I didn't even realize that when you add marmite to a gravy or maybe a carbonara sauce or I had it in a caramel apple dip the salty umami flavor just actually makes it so delicious I never would have known that without the gusto marmite partnership and now I love marmite too and I was not on your squad before now. <laughs> so you've been converted. This is a positive yeah. thing. Um, now, Catherine, our show is called Driven. It's about what drives people. Yeah. It's what it's about what celebrities and achievers do sort of mentally, physically, etc., to stay ahead of the curve, to stay kind of leaping out of bed in the morning and taking on the world, etc. And your story, I mean, you've had a, a sort of fascinating life, but but one of the big challenges you've faced is, is no less than two bouts of skin cancer. They mm. must have been kind of big moments for you where you're like, whoa, hang on. This isn't cool. How did you get through those times? 
I think that was fine with me because when I first had melanoma, which is the more serious kind of skin cancer, that was level two, like stage two, which isn't stage three or four, but it's still something at 21. And um, you have this ambivalence um, of youth. I really believed I was indestructible. And my whole family were quite worried, but I wasn't. I was always very positive about it. I think that ambivalence and naivety has driven me a lot in my life. I I take risks and I try things because I just don't know any better. I just always think, well, I could do that. I could try that. I don't mind if I fail. I don't mind if I hear no. And I just move forward. So I only realized after I was all clear for skin cancer that it was maybe could have kind of been a big deal. Right, right, right. It's almost more frightening retrospectively, as it were. Yeah. So, so the yeah. whole what drives you thing, I mean, it sounds like this this kind of absence of fear of failure is quite a quite a big thing for you, which is terrific. I really think that people are arrested by fear. I've seen it in my family. I've seen it with my friends. Nobody wants to make a mistake. They're very risk adverse. And I was just never that way. I feel like you get one life and you should have as much fun and be kind and generous if you can, but just try to do everything you want. Why wouldn't you try to do everything you want? And then, you know, have a backup plan. I waitressed, I worked in offices. It wasn't like easy. But um, if anybody asks me, can you do that? I say yes. And then I figure it out later. I love it. I love it. Well, do you know what? I think that's you're embodied because the first time I became aware of you in the UK, I think I saw you at mm-hmm. the Banana Cabaret in um, in Balham. And then, like, oh, no. which was brilliant. And then the next week, you're on this show called Bring the Noise on Sky One, which is, I mean, you had to throw yourself into everything for that. That was sensational. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't I? And I have the kind of job that if people don't like it, that's fine with me. I really feel that we all like different things. Otherwise, we'd all be married to my father. That's what my mom always told me. And I'm not a cardiologist. If I have a bad day at work, there's no harm, no foul. Yeah. No one's died. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. The Andy J Podcast. So there we go. One, two, three, four, five, six celebrities sharing their stories. Jamie, Janet, Katie, Miles, Suzanne and Catherine. I hope you found it helpful, interesting, worthwhile and engaging. I hope you also realise that what this means, of course, is that there are a lot of people out there from all walks of life facing their own challenges and issues. And you know what? It's just about sometimes breathing, just keeping going, finding the strength to take another step forward. And I know this is the strangest time right now, and we're all going through weirdness. I gave you out the numbers at the start for some places that could help. I'll put some details in the blurb below as well. If you need them, call them. Let me tell you about next week's show as well. It'll be a lot more lighthearted than today. We've got some really big hitter superstar celebrities. If you are new to the Andy J podcast, thank you very much for your company. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're getting through it. And uh, I hope you're finding some laughter and lightness and some happiness and joy, as well as, of course, the, uh, the information that I hope will serve those that need to hear it. We've got a huge, huge catalogue of celebrity conversations. I'm not going to start plugging that. Just take a look at what we've got in our back catalogue and dive in. Find something that will entertain you and I hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you for your company. Tell your friends, share, subscribe and so on and so forth. And if you fancy leaving a review, that's always a nice thing to do if you want to be nice. Don't say anything nasty though, eh? Because there are a few people out there that just choose to vent. And well, not only does that not help, I don't really think it's very kind. All the best to you and yours. 
and Merry Festives, if that's appropriate. I know we're after Christmas now, but it's that weird zone, isn't it? Anyway, back next week. Take it easy. Look after yourself. The Andy J Podcast. J Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.